good morning. I'm going to use the chair again today because the mono is back, not my favorite thing. My title for this morning's sermon is Idolatry, a Boring Road to Death, and I at least embody the boring part right now. Not a lot happening, mostly rest. But thank you for your prayers, for your notes, uh, your concern. Uh, and I continue to welcome and invite your prayers. I am very worn out these days. Uh, again, life is kind of boring right now, for me at least. Mono plus a pandemic means I'm not doing very much. Uh, not a lot that I'm able to do. And sometimes I do get the itch to go do something interesting that feels a little more like normal, something like maybe play basketball or have our normal Monday night meetings at a restaurant or that kind of thing, but these are things that for me, I can't do right now. Scratching those particular itches might feel good for a moment, but at the least they would wipe me out, and at the worst, they would potentially expose me to a virus that would be very brutal on my body at the moment. Scratching these kinds of itches when life feels boring sometimes feels exciting, like that's where life is, where living really is. In his Confessions, Augustine tells the story of stealing some pears just because he felt like stealing. He wasn't even interested in the pears. I think most of us understand that kind of feeling. I know I do. For me, it used to be pornography or watching a movie I wasn't supposed to watch. Pornography is actually a good example of what I'm talking about today. It's lifeless and personless. It makes us boring by altering our brains and our desires and our abilities for true life-giving intimacy. Pornography itself is dehumanizing to others, and then it also makes us less human. We see there's all kinds of studies, brain research, marriage and birth rates, porn's contribution to ED in, in men, and um, we can see that actually marriage and birth rates in some nations with a lot of pornography use are actually lower we can see that our brains are being altered by use of pornography. Porn, porn actually turns us into less than fully human people. Now, thank God, our brains actually restore after a few years of abstinence from pornography. God, that's God's gift to us. And God can and does bring grace and healing to those who use porn or have porn addictions. There is grace. I want to emphasize that. But pornography is an example of how sin and idolatry actually make us lifeless and boring. Our passage today is going to look at three kings over the northern kingdom of Israel. And David just read um, the first king, Nadab. These, these three kings are all idolaters. They all do evil. And the most interesting things that the writer of the kings can say about any of them is that they did evil and they died. The writer is not at all interested in any of these kings. It's only interesting, the story only gets interesting when a prophet of God shows up or when something terrible happens that changes the direction of these dynasties. We'll get into this later, but the writer of Kings seems to be emphasizing, again, what I've already said, that idolatry is boring. God's prophets, when they show up, they change the world. But these kings, who think they're in charge, don't leave an impact at all. 
following the nations, being like the nations, worshiping other gods, these are just things that bad kings do. There's nothing compelling about that. That's what idolaters are. Sin and idolatry are boring. Last week, we looked at a couple of kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, David and Solomon were kings over all of Israel. And then Solomon's son Rehoboam, we'll call him Arbo, because I want to. He lost the ten tribes of the north to Jeroboam, we'll call him Jabo. We've got Arbo in the south and Jabo in the north. Both Arbo and Jabo are bad kings. But Arbo's grandson in the south, in Judah, was a good king. Asa was his name, and he led well. The kings in the south are consistently compared with David because David is the founder of the dynasty of the south. This week, we're going to look at kings in the north, and the pattern of their reigns will follow after the pattern of Jeroboam, Jabo. The writer of the kings seems to consider Jabo the founder of the dynasty up in the north. Though, as we'll see, there is no dynasty in the north. Because kings keep being killed and killing off one another. Jabo established the northern kingdom of Israel by rebelling. Then he led the north into idol worship and alternative religion. And he rejected God's warnings. The kings in the north are going to follow that pattern. Lots of rebellion, lots of idolatry, lots of not listening to God. So the pattern of the text here, uh, as we go through several of Israel's kings, is this. The writer's going to tell us uh, when they became king, tell us a little bit about their reign, maybe tell us a story, and tell us about their death. That's it. The writer of the kings is not interested in any of these kings because they just follow the pattern of Jeroboam. There's not much to say when everybody just fits the mold. Our job is to watch out for what the writer actually does tell us in the text. And the writer tells us specifically two main things. These kings do evil and they die. That's about it. Let's pray and then look at these three kings together. Lord, thank you that you're good to us. Thank you that you don't leave us in the place of idolatry, but you actually have a kingdom of life and grace that you're inviting us into. Thank you that you don't leave us as boring and dead, but you make life interesting and alive in Jesus. So Father, I ask uh, as we uh, are gathered here today, I ask that you would do your work in us to um, remove the idols from our lives and shape us to be more like Jesus, to live life in his blessed kingdom. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So idolatry is boring and deadly. Let's look first at Nadab, the the story that that David just read for us. Again, Nadab, son of Jeroboam, he reigns for two years, and the text tells us he did evil following the ways of his father, committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. That is idolatry, uh, worshiping other gods, and... um, not listening to the Lord. He follows the Jeroboam dynasty. He's compared with his father, Jeroboam. He does evil. The one big story that we see in this description of Nadab's reign, the big story is that Basha kills him. He's assassinated 
by Baasha in fulfillment of God's prophecy through Ahijah. I don't know if you remember, but in chapter 14, uh, Ahijah uh, tells Jeroboam's wife, hey, your whole family is going to be wiped out. All of Jeroboam's family. This comes true here at the end of chapter 15. This is the only thing that the writer of Kings wants to tell us about Nadab's reign, is that he's killed. That's it. There's nothing else to say about Nadab. He's boring. His death, we might say, is the fulfillment of his reign. He reigned in a way that would lead to death, and then he died. That's all there is to say. Death is the fulfillment of a life given over to idolatry. That is what happens to us. When we give ourselves over to idolatry, death is the result. So Baasha kills Nadab and Jeroboam's whole family. Okay, let's look at Baasha. This is uh, 15 chap- uh, chapter 15, verse 33 through 16, verse 7. It says in the text, In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, son of Ahijah, became king of all Israel. He reigned 24 years. How does the writer of Kings characterize his reign? Verse 34, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. That's how the writer of Kings characterizes his reign. Well, he does give us a story. It's pretty nice. 16 verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanani, concerning Baasha. I lifted you up from the dust. I appointed you ruler over my people. But you followed the ways of Jeroboam, caused my people Israel to sin and aroused my anger by their sins. So I'm about to wipe out Baasha and his house. And I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Dogs will eat those belonging to Baasha who die in the city. Birds will feed on those who die in the country. That's the one story that the writer of Kings wants to tell us about a 24-year reign in the north. Baasha's entire reign, he did evil. And then what's the one story? It's a prophecy about the death of his family. It's actually, part of this prophecy is taken word for word from the prophecy that Ahijah gave to Jeroboam in chapter 14. This is the same prophecy. Jeroboam lived, Baasha lived the same way as Jeroboam. He receives the same prophecy as Jeroboam and ends up with the same fate as Jeroboam. That is, idolatry and death. Now, uh, I want to point out one thing here. Uh, verse 7. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu, son of Hanani, to Baasha and his house because of all the evil he had done in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger by the things he did, becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and also, this is the NIV, and also because he destroyed it. In other words, um, the text seems to hint, or at least suggest, that Baasha is punished because he carried out God's prophesied punishment against Jeroboam's house. Now, this raises some questions for me, and it might for you, and I don't want to try and answer all those questions. Ted's growth group guide, by the way, if you uh, participate in growth groups or just want to look at the guides online, Ted's guide for this week brings out the point that Baasha is punished for part, partly for fulfilling God's prophecy against Jeroboam's line. 
God told Jeroboam his whole family would be punished, would be wiped out. Now Baasha does it, but Baasha gets punished for it. How is that fair? Is God being unfair here? Again, Ted's guide does a good job of working through some of this. And I want to give you a chance to discuss it. So if you're interested by this, please discuss after the service or send me an email with thoughts and questions. I'd be interested to to wrestle with you on this question. Um, But I do want to mention three things. First, the prophecy against Baasha is largely because of his own evil. This is carried out because of all the evil that Baasha had done in the eyes of the Lord. The text is not at all trying to make us feel sorry for Baasha in any way. Baasha was participating in evil that got him punished. So that's first. Second, God does this kind of thing in other places. God promises punishment, and then he punishes the people who carry out the punishment. Just because God uses someone to carry out his plans and fulfill his purposes does not mean that they have done right when they do it. They're still responsible for their own actions and and responsible for any evil they do while fulfilling God's prophecies. This is a difficult but consistent teaching in the Old Testament. And I, I point you to a text like Habakkuk 1 if you want to see other examples of that. Third thing, God's prophecies against God's people are almost always warnings of what will happen if they fail to repent. God's prophecies aren't always written in stone when he gives them. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 20, we'll get there, I don't know, someday. God tells Hezekiah, you're going to die of this illness. And then Hezekiah prays, and God says, okay, I'll heal you of this illness. What gives? God's prophecies are invitations. They're warnings that we have the opportunity then to follow God into a beautiful, interesting, exciting life. A life of blessing. God gave Jeroboam every chance to turn back. God's prophecies against Jeroboam's family were warnings and invitations to turn to him. In the same way, Jehu's prophecy against Baasha is an invitation, it's a warning. Hey, please turn back to me. But Baasha doesn't turn back. The natural consequence of that are that Baasha's family will be wiped out. There's more here, uh, and there might be sticky theological questions about God's sovereignty here for you, uh, questions that I don't have the answers to, but I do enjoy wrestling uh, over them. So if you're interested and want to wrestle more, uh, I invite that. Okay, that's Baasha. Elah, uh, in verses uh, 8 through 14 of chapter 16, succeeds Baasha's king. And Elah is Baasha's son, so he becomes king after Baasha. He reigns for two years. Again, how'd he do? He did evil. Um, and what's the one story that we get about Elah's reign as king? It's his assassination at the hands of Zimri. It's the only thing that the the writer of Kings wants to tell us about Elah as king, is that he died. Zimri kills Elah while Elah's drunk. 
Then Zimri goes on to kill all of Baasha's line, everybody in the family, according to Jehu's prophecy. Now, I mean, this pattern goes on and on. Zimri lasts a week as king. Then Omri kills him and becomes king, and there isn't much of a story there either, just sin and death. The writer of Kings wants us to learn some things from this. All these kings are the same. The pattern is the same. Evil, idolatry, death. Elah's death is the most interesting thing about his reign. It's the fulfillment of the way he lived and ruled. Like Nadab and Baasha, Elah left nothing worth writing about, nothing lasting for us. To sum up these three kings, the writer of Kings is telling us idolatry is boring. Uh, One commentator, Peter Lightheart, puts it this way. Rise, reign, sin, die. War and sin, sin and war. Idolatry is boring. Nothing interesting is happening. Yeah, there's assassinations, there's death. But nothing in their reigns is interesting. It's all boring. It's because... Uh, that's because idols are boring. They don't do anything. People die around them. People die on them. People die for them. The reality is people die. That's pretty standard. But there's no life there. There's nothing of interest. Idols don't offer life. They have eyes but don't see. They have mouths but don't speak. They have arms and legs but they don't move. People die on them trying to bring life up out of them, but they have no life in themselves. We become what we worship. We worship idols, we become like idols. We become boring and dead. A couple passages I want to point you to. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Habakkuk says, Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? Or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that can't speak. Woe to him who says to wood, Come to life. Or to a lifeless stone, Wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. And then Psalm 115 Starting in verse 2. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, but he does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but can't speak. They have eyes but can't see. They have ears cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but can't walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. When we worship idols, we become like them. We actually become like what we worship. When we worship stuff or ideas that don't actually have life, they don't make us more interesting. This is Peter Lightheart again. He says, idols are lifeless and cannot impart life. Lifeless idols only make for lifeless people. When the initial titillation has passed, idolatry quickly yields to dryness 
and death. Uh, Like we did last week, I want to invite you to reflect for a couple of minutes. Reflect on that itch, that titillation. Have you tried to scratch that itch with something other than God? I mentioned pornography earlier, but there's lots of different ways that we might try and scratch our itches. So I invite you to reflect with, with others or just you and God for a couple of minutes. Reflect on this question. Have you ever pursued sin or idolatry that felt exciting but led to boredom and destruction? What was that like for you? So discuss with others or reflect with Jesus for the next two minutes uh, and I'll bring us back. Okay. Now we're going to turn to life in God, life in His blessed kingdom. Life in God may not scratch all our itches, but it answers our deepest needs, yearnings, and longings. And it leads to life. Life in God's blessed kingdom is beautiful and good and life giving. Now, I don't have the energy to express my excitement over this next part, so forgive me for that. But the writer of Kings, again, he's not excited about any of the kings that we've looked at today. But he does get excited telling us about people who are living out God's kingdom life. He gets excited telling us about prophets and the kings who do follow God. Solomon was interesting. He wasn't perfect, but he was interesting. Asa was interesting, we saw last week. Unlike Basha, and again, Basha ruled for 24 years. He must have had some kind of impact. The writer of Kings doesn't tell us anything. 
He's boring. We're going to have a bunch of boring kings until we get to Ahab. Not because he's particularly interesting, but because during his reign, the prophet Elijah shows up. Elijah ministers during Ahab's reign, and he is interesting. Want to talk about a guy with compelling life and compelling stories? Look at Elijah. He raises the dead. He stops the rain from falling. He does all kinds of interesting things. He speaks truth to power. He avoids the forces of the king. He participates in God's victory over the prophets of Baal. And then he experiences God's tender and loving care for him in his despair. And his life ends when he's taken up by a burning chariot. I mean, how cool is this guy? The writer of Kings is so interested in the life of Elijah. And then, I mean, there's all kinds of people in Scripture that we could look at. In our summer series, which starts next week, uh, we're going to start looking together at the Sermon on the Mount. And we're calling the series Life in His Blessed Kingdom, which worked for me also for point two for this sermon. But we're calling it that because Jesus is inviting us into His kingdom life, and it's a blessed, life-giving kind of kingdom. Jesus invites us to follow after him as he heals the sick, clothes the naked, feeds the hungry, causes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Jesus lived a full and abundant life, casting out demons, raising the dead, confronting those who wanted to keep the people under their power, confronting and overcoming Satan himself, defeating the powers of sin and death. Jesus was the most interesting of all people that ever walked the earth. Even his death leads to life. And those who follow Jesus are interesting. The disciples, Paul, the martyrs of the church, lots of people who follow Jesus have led very interesting, compelling, and beautiful lives. C.S. Lewis, in an essay I recommend to you, uh, The Weight of Glory, honestly, I can't recommend this highly enough. It's so good. But he says that every one of us has the potential for glory, for a truly beautiful life. He puts it this way, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he or she is your Christian neighbor, then in him or her also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. There is no person then who is truly uninteresting. Though, as we saw today, there might be ways of life that are really and truly boring. Idolatry is to take a dwelling place and image bearer of the Most High God and to make it bow down to a thing made by our hands. Whereas true worship, empowered by God's Spirit, raises up these people, you and I, made from dust and elevates us to this holy, glorified state that God made for us and made us for. We become one with Christ, participating in the life and love of the Trinitarian God. That's what happens when we truly worship the God who is revealed in Jesus. 
Watching the tragedies in Minneapolis this week, there's a lot to think about and a lot that might be said. But I want to start just by saying I'm moved to lament the death of another unarmed black man, George Floyd, at the hands of police. Mr. Floyd left a legacy of goodness and supported church efforts towards peace and towards supporting responsible black manhood in Houston, at least, where he was from. The police were called because his behavior was suspicious on the day he died in Minneapolis. But I lament his death, and I lament a system where black lives don't always seem to matter as much as other lives. That's a sad reality and a stain on this nation. There are black men and women in our churches and in our community who do not experience relief or peace when they see a police officer, but fear. And that's something I think we can lament. And if that's you, I want you to know that God is with you and he is for you. And I, for one, would love to hear your story, and I want to stand with you. I also recognize that this community has men and women who, served or you, who serve now or used to serve as police officers. I just want to say I'm grateful for the work that you do. To serve and protect the image bearers of God is beautiful, honorable work. I lament that the actions of some police officers and police departments can have the effect of calling into question the reputations of others, just like the actions of some Christians can hurt the reputation of the whole church. I pray for you as police officers. May God's Spirit empower you, policemen and women, to serve like Jesus, to protect the vulnerable, and to lead our community in ways that lead to racial justice and healing until that day when justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I invite all of us to lament the brokenness we're seeing in Minneapolis and that we've seen play out across the country. We don't need to judge others or have all the answers or inflame racial tensions and divisions. You and I have the gift of lament. We are given the grace to lament, to feel and express the pain of living in a broken world. Before God and others, we have the opportunity to express our solidarity with victims of all kinds of violence and injustice. So I pray that George Floyd may rest in peace, that his family may know God's presence, and that the church in this nation might follow after Jesus in seeking to empty ourselves for the sake of others, not looking out for our own needs, but looking out for the needs of others. When God is involved, a life is beautiful. Your neighbor, white or black, native or immigrant, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, is the holiest object you will experience today. When God creates someone, when God touches someone, or uses them to touch some, someone else, it's interesting. It's beautiful. And you and I can live beautiful lives, interesting lives, lives not given over to idols that turn us into zombie versions of ourselves, with eyes but no vision, with ears but no hearing, with mouths that don't speak, with book learning but no wisdom, with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram accounts but no discernment. Idols like sex, money, and power turn us into things that are less human, 
less fully what God made us to be. He's calling us into something beautiful. So I invite you to think and pray, what is God inviting you into? What kind of interesting, beautiful life does God have for you? Life in Jesus' kingdom is interesting. It's beautiful. It's life-giving. It's compelling. It's more than we could ask for or imagine because it's life empowered by the King of Kings, the King who raises the dead and brings life. It's not the boring life of following after dead things. So I invite you now to take a couple minutes to reflect with those around you or with the Lord. What is God inviting you into? What kind of interesting, beautiful life does he have for you? How do you see God moving and leading even during these quieter times? How might God be inviting you into new life? I invite you to discuss with others or reflect with Jesus. And again, I'll bring us back. Okay, so idolatry is boring, but a life lived in the kingdom of God following after Jesus our Lord is interesting. It's beautiful. It's life-giving. It may be simple, but a simple life can change the world. We're going to look at some of the characteristics of that kind of life this summer as we look at parts of the Sermon on the Mount. What does a blessed life look like? How do we live it? So I invite you back next week to consider life in his blessed kingdom as we start to look at Jesus' words. But for now, I want to leave you with Psalm 1.
Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, like our kings uh, from today's passage. They're like chaff that the wind just blows away. So the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows and watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. You and I can be like trees planted firmly in God's living water, yielding fruit, uh, our leaves not withering, prospering in and through Jesus. The kings we looked at today and all who chase after other gods and idols are like chaff, blown by the wind. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous and he will watch over and protect us as we follow him in his blessed kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you. You have brought life to us. You invite us into your kingdom of life. You are making life break out all around us. We praise you and thank you. Thank you that you invite us in, that we don't have to continue to worship after dead idols, but you are making us new by your Spirit. Continue your work in us today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we might live beautiful, life-giving, compelling lives following in our Lord. Um, We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.